A lot can change in just nine days between podcast episodes. The Jazz went from being losers of four straight to winners of four straight. Gordon Hayward went from what's wrong with that guy to wow, where'd that guy come from? And Dante Hanksom went from aggressive to sitting. I'm Dan Clayton. My brother Ken and I went from feeling like we knew everything about the Jazz to feeling like we didn't know much at all. And that's what we're (laughs) going to talk about on this evening's Salt City Hoops podcast. Welcome everybody in. Uh, again, I'm Dan Clayton, and uh, this is a Brothers Clayton edition of the podcast because once again, Ken joins me from balmy Phoenix. How's it going down there, Ken? Not as balmy as it once was, but it's uh, still much better than most places around the country. Really? Because actually here in Brooklyn, it's oddly balmy. Oh, okay. Now we were, uh, oh, what were we? I think we were, I think we're under 40 or under 50 out there right now. So it's, uh, it's a little cool. Wow. I don't I don't know how you guys managed to survive in that. Exactly. So uh so yeah, we we chatted 9 days ago. We've chatted since then too cuz you know, we sometimes speak not just in podcast form. But when we last spoke on a Salt City Hoops podcast, um the sky was a little bit falling and actually we spent a whole podcast talking about how things probably weren't as bad as they felt in that moment. But man, did things feel differently last time we chatted. Um, We talked after the Jazz had been blown out in Denver. That was their fourth straight loss. And and I guess probably more than anything else, there were a lot of things we discussed, like um, different developmental things and and players that didn't look right or didn't look like they'd progress as much as, as we had hoped. But I guess more than anything, it was the status of the Jazz's alleged best player that was most worrisome nine days ago. And boy, is that not a worry anymore? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were worried, you know, between us that, uh, and probably many other fans as well, is this injury more serious than we've been led to believe? I mean, obviously he came back probably a little earlier than I expected when we saw him at that New York game. Um, but then he, and then he, and he played, four or five great games. Um, and then the, the, like you said, the sky fell a little bit and all of a sudden he's looking like he's messing with that thing physically all the time. And as you pointed out, he, it seemed to be messing with him as far as his in the head. And he had some rough games there in that middle patch. Yeah. He had a, a nine point, he had an eight point, he had a 13 point. That was kind of the, uh, the bottom of the, <laughs> the bottom of the well for uh, for Gordon Hayward's season, at least thus far. Yeah, um, and you know one thing that I track, it, it, I've tracked for a couple of years, is how often is he a legit 20.0 or higher point-per-game scorer. And he started out the season great, and when he came off that 13, 8, and 9, he dropped down below. He's now thankfully pulled it back up above, uh, and he's at 21.4 now on the strength of these last few games. Yeah, actually, I'm... I'm Sort of glad and sort of not glad you mentioned that because that is going to be something that in your honor, Ken, I I <laughs> feature in tomorrow's Salt City 7. Um, and and actually, so in his next game, when when the Jazz play tomorrow against the, uh, remind me, who do they play tomorrow? Miami. Right? Uh, Miami, yep. Yeah. So when they face Miami, as long as Gordon um, gets a bucket as long as he gets literally two points in that game tomorrow he will finish tomorrow and he tomorrow will be the 11th game of this season that he finishes with a 20.0 or higher scoring average 
and that will be that will tie any other season he's ever had. So and and you know we're in November still. Well, actually, technically by then we'll be in December. But point being, um, yeah, you've talked a lot about that twenty point thing, and um, and we've talked a lot about that twenty point thing. And for the time being, it looks like he's kind of gotten back to where he's not just hanging on by a thread, but you know, this may legitimately be who Gordon Hayward is as a player. Yeah. And let's hope so, because uh, this one looks pretty good that week when he was playing and, you know, part of it was, uh, you know, Hill was missing favors was missing. Actually favors played a couple of those games. I think um, obviously Burks hasn't played yet this season. So, you know, the more guys around you, uh, you know, the more defense can key on you, but it certainly hasn't uh, looked like that's bothered him much these last few games. And again, Hill was back. That that has helped a, a ton as well. Yeah, you talked to me about that when we were when we were messaging yesterday about about what we would talk about. Um, let's talk about that. I mean, <laughs> obviously, some of the some of the bad body language that I interpreted as "ow, my finger hurts." Um, and by the way, I don't necessarily think. I or slash any of us were wrong about the finger. I, I think there was some legitimate stuff and probably still is just anyway. Well, that's a tangent. I'll save the tangent. Yeah. Um, some of the body language I was attributing to that may in retrospect may have just been, you know, I, I've got four guys on the court with me and not all of them are, you know, rotation quality NBA play or, or at least high qual high level rotation players. Um, because not only, does his play look better, but he just is a more bright eyed, bushy tailed, excited player these last four outings since George Hill returned. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe the one guy is, is what made the difference. I mean, certainly the way that one guy has been playing in his first games and these most recent four games certainly would give anybody, any team a shot in the arm. Um, we're going to turn this into a Hill segment instead of a Hayward segment. But I mean, that, that has to have helped, but I think too, you know, you, you might be right, but I think too, part of that, you know, uh, body language we saw was, you know, we're, we as fans are all wondering how serious that finger is. Maybe that was in his head too. How serious is this? Is this going to slow me down again? Um, it already cost him what the first six games of the season. So now is it going to sit and make me sit out more? And, and gratefully, it hasn't to this point. And hopefully now, uh, with being able to, you know, spread the ball around a little bit, spread, spread the spread the defense's attention around a little more. Hopefully, that's all it was. And he's he's over that as long as Hill's still healthy. And and who knows? Maybe one of these days when some of these other guys get back as well. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about um, there was there was something happening, right? Um, yeah. That much is pretty clear. And uh, I think last week we talked about the one game where he appeared to to re-aggravate it. He came back to the bench after going to the locker room and wasn't even really talking to people. Like guys were asking him if he was okay and he was just nodding and giving one word answers. And, and I do think that there was, uh, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing Twitter doctor from, 2000 miles away. Um, and I, and I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not reporting anything here. I'm guessing slash repeating things that, that people in a position to guess have, have also guessed privately to me. Um, I, I think that there was a point in time where he and others were wondering what that injury was going to cost him. And I don't necessarily think, my guess, again, 
an educated guess, but my guess is that at this point, it's um, it's not necessarily that it magically got better because broken fingers don't magically get better in a week's time. I think that they've probably made some decisions about how to manage it game to game um, in terms of pain control and things like that. Um, because you still see him fidget with it. You still see things like that, but it's obviously not affecting his play like it was because he went from games of eight, nine, and 13 to games of 24, 24, and 31. So again, take all of that for what it's worth, but uh, but I think some very real stuff was happening, and that's the fear we were seeing in Gordon's eyes. Yeah, absolutely. What's it going to cost him? What's it going to cost the team? And at a time when the team was already a little decimated. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, um, you know, I, I, I made the point last week and, and it's worth repeating now if for no other reason than because we still don't know favors prognosis and now suddenly Rodney hood, yeah. um, you know, is, is having problems with that hamstring again. Um, the point I made then is, you know, maybe this is the stretch of schedule where, you can probably stay afloat um, if if some guys need time to get their bodies right. Uh, but I think that this is also a portion of the schedule that if you had looked at the schedule back in whenever it was released, th- this is a period of time that you would have hoped the Jazz could not just stay afloat, that they could do better than stay afloat and that they could really stockpile wins that may be easier to come by later. So it'll be interesting to see how conservative they play things on the injury front. Um, during the stretch in December when so many of the games are at home. Yeah, and you've got the, a couple more, and then you've got a quick road trip and then a five-game homestand, although that does include Golden State and somebody else who I'm not remembering. Toronto. Who's, who's a decent team. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you, you should be able to, even if you have a hood out, hopefully that's not it. Well, that's not going to be nearly the impact of having Hayward or Hill out. I mean, what we're seeing is whether it ends up being a big three or a big four, um, talking about when favors returns. Um, I mean, Hood is right now playing like a complimentary player to that, to that central core. So losing him for a few games, if that happens, um, you know, shouldn't be the same impact as losing a Hayward, losing a Hill or losing a favors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if for no other reason than that, some of what Hood gives the jazz is, um, is a little is similar. I don't want to say it's redundant because the Jazz have actually won a you know they won a lot of games last year because they had two guys that could do what Hayward and Hood do. So I don't want to say it's redundant or superfluous or or you know unnecessary. But certainly if if Hill's out, you can kind of re- reallocate some possessions, reallocate some minutes. Whereas you know when Favors is out or heaven forbid if if Gobert missed some time like those are not those guys possess some unique things that no one else on the roster can just slide in and and say oh you need me to hold the opponent the the opposing team to 38 percent at the rim and block four shots and also get a big meaty 16 and 14 double double like that's um you, you know I think in that sense the Jazz can probably weather a uh a hood injury um and and by and you know they they didn't necessarily weather the hill injury but they got hill back now and and uh they finished november at 10 and 6 so i think they're actually in 
in fairly good shape and probably not even if if we're honest with ourselves probably not even that far off of where we would have put them at 11 at, at November 30th even if we knew that those players were going to miss some time right i mean 11 and 8 could you maybe make an argument that they should be 12 and 7 or 13? you know yeah you could but i mean isn't this where the jazz probably should have been at this point in the season pretty close i've always i've always had the feeling that you know when you pick up an extra win it's there's always a flip side to that and somewhere you're going to drop one you shouldn't i mean even look back at championship teams or the you know the jazz when they were competing for the championship uh or teams who've won it there, there's always a, a a dumb game in there where they lose to an expansion team just one night along the way um so i think you know the jazz picked up a game in san antonio that nobody probably had any reasonable expectation to think they'd win. And then they lose one down the road, uh, you know, wherever that was. Well, they lost, you know, they were two and three at home to begin. So, and you didn't expect probably all three of those or maybe any of those. So you, you there's a little bit of a trade-off and they've been, I mentioned earlier that the, you know, game basketball is a game of runs. The season's been a game of runs. They started out one and two, then they go six and two, then oh and four, now four and oh. And it looks like, if everything works well in the next couple of games, they should get probably to at least six and zero. Uh, you know, hopefully with Miami and Denver coming in, to I still have a hard time with this. The Vivint Smart Home Arena, uh, they should yeah. be able to get that to six and zero, and then I think that's when Golden State comes in after that, or maybe that's a road trip after that. Um. Yeah. Whatever that place is called. No, I, I hear you. I, you know. Now I also think that there are fewer absolute bottom dwellers this season um that's something that a lot of people have discussed around the nba not just in the context of jazz talk but there are a lot fewer just like oh you see denver on your schedule and you're like oh, that's a definite you know denver at home they're going to win that game denver is an improved team it, their win-loss record may not show it at the end of the year because um because there are only 1280 wins in the nba season and you know it's a zero something but uh but yeah i i will say that these days when i look at the schedule there are fewer times where i think oh oh yeah the jazz would be probably lucky to get that one um and I'll, and, I'll, and then again to your point some of those games are like at san antonio where they go and defy everybody anyway just to turn around and drop another one somewhere else yeah and you're right i'm not considering you know the the uh Coach Snyder and and predecessor Coach Sloan probably hate to think that anybody's looking ahead a game, but I'm I'm not counting the Denver Nuggets as a win. But I'm saying it's one Miami Denver, good chance it wins. In fact, after that it's not Golden State. Then it's at the Lakers, and then a home game against the Suns. So you got some opportunity in the next four games to run this up. Maybe you don't go eight straight, but uh, you should you should be coming out of this with a pretty decent record. And then you hit the Warriors coming into Salt Lake City. Yeah, at Lakers does worry me a little bit. Sure. That's that's probably the one in that block that worries me the most. Um, I'm not entirely sure yet. I'm convinced that the Lakers' early play is real, but they play well. They especially play well at home. So, you know, that's... Yeah. Um, but to your point, I mean, a, an eight-win streak is not out of the realm of... of of what's possible um and neither is you know them finding a way to blow two or three out of this next out of these next four you just you you don't know and that's kind of um 
that's kind of, I guess, the point about the the parody and so forth. Yeah, but hopefully not. I mean, the way they're playing right this minute sure feels like they should be able to not blow two or three. Yeah, and if it happens, I, I mean, I if think it happens, we're blaming you. I, I have I haven't looked. I haven't looked at uh, like the the five thirty eight odds. My guess would be the Jazz are probably like seventy percent favorites um, or higher in all of those four games except at the Lakers. Yeah, and they may and they may still even be favored. So I mean, yeah, I hear you. The Jazz, the three of those four games are should win games. That just doesn't mean, as we all know, that they're that they're guarantees. All right, so the Jazz turn things around. Gordon Hayward turned things around. George Hill is back from injury. Uh, Rodney Hood finally had an, another really nice game before he left with the hamstring injury. A lot of things, a, a lot of storylines pointing the right direction. And then sadly, one that's one that's going the wrong direction, it seems. And uh, while people should be celebrating a four-game winning streak, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on about a certain point guard minutes conspiracy or, or controversy, I should say. Controversy. Yeah. And it's crazy because when we talked a week ago, nine days ago, we said that's one of the bright spots to where they're at after coming off of four straight losses is Dante Exum seems to have turned the corner. He was playing more aggressively. He had under control. He was, uh, you know, he had some good scoring games. I thought he was poised to, you know, take another step. What we even mentioned talked about possibly when could we be talking about the Exum game uh, that last game he played 35 minutes uh, Shelvin Mack played 16 and then the next game uh, George Hill returned Dante Exum was apparently the backup point guard which is kind of what I would expect after the minute breakdown the game before and after seven kind of subpar sleepwalking minutes the plug got pulled on that and Shelvin Mack came in as the backup in the second half and from then on, it hasn't been going well for Dante Exum. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. And and by the way, I rewatched that second Denver game, the game where where Exum finished with eight total minutes. Um, I, I wanted to just rewatch it. In the I, I knew he didn't play well. I talked at the time about how he didn't play well. My Thanksgiving Day Salt City Seven talked about how George, uh, how Exum was going to have to figure out how to still be aggressive with George Hill back, and how he wasn't going to have time to just sort of lollygag around and and uh and and wait for the game to come to him and kind of ease into things i talked about so i knew he didn't play well in that game but now in the context of this whole why isn't x i'm playing i wanted to go back and understand you know what quinn snyder saw and so i i rewatched those minutes and i watched them as critically as i possibly could and like hey it's true he played poorly full stop like there's no um, uh, on offense, he was, um, passive on, on the, on the best possessions. He was passive on the worst possessions. He was, you know, reckless and making bad mistakes and making poor decisions. And on defense, he just, he was dying on picks. He was getting lost. He was, um, y- you know, he would realize that he had lost track of his man. And so he would kind of just, go to guard the closest guy and be like, Oh, I guess we're switching. And then his teammate would have to be like, Oh, I guess I'm switching. It just, it was not a good game. Mm-hmm. Now in the context of you just had five really good games where the coach that has been begging you to be assertive, just watched you play assertive for five games and you have a bad game. 
like I think that Exum probably deserved to run a few extra laps in practice the next day. I think he probably deserved to sit down that night. I think he deserved, like, I think that there are a lot of, of uh, good approaches to when a player plays that poorly. But the fact that it came on the heels of such an impressive stretch, not that he was, you know, you mentioned it. I mean, his, his efficiency wasn't great during that five game stretch, but just the fact that he was doing the things that Quinn has begged him to do. Um, I'm not sure I would want to necessarily retard that process more than I had to because he had seven bad minutes or eight bad minutes. Yeah. And that, and that was the big surprise. I, I remember that second Denver game, the home game you're talking about. I actually missed the first half. And instead of watching it, I, I just picked up live in the second half. And I remember tweeting or uh, IMing you and saying, did Exum not play? No, he did play in the first half. He's just gotten the hook in the second half. Then the next game, five minutes. Then his first career DNP CD. And now he did get eight minutes last night. And he still looked uh, like a deer in the headlights a bit on both offense and defense. It was a rough uh, rough stretch in the, in the Houston game. And again, all these games were wins. So the team is going the right direction. But yeah, it's whether the fault lies with with Exum's preparation or attitude or Coach Snyder's handling of it, uh, yeah, he's he's uh, a lot has changed again in four games. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, you have the so okay. There was the eight minute game we talked about. Then there was the, um, then there was the DMP. Then there was the five minute game you mentioned. Those were five garbage time minutes. So yeah. you know, whatever. Well, those we'll were in the those. other order, but yeah, right. And then, and then last night it was weird. We're recording this, by the way, on Wednesday night. So in Tuesday night's game, it was weird. He came in for literally like less than sixty seconds in the first half, and you know, look again. I get what they're trying to do with him. I get that this is a means to get his attention and to sort of inspire some adherence so in, in inspire scare him into compliance or whatever you want to call it but i'm just not sure that for a player who's historically struggled with confidence that the way to get confidence back is to put him in there for literally a minute and basically be like the second you make a single mistake your 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 butt's going to be right next to mine again yeah it just and he, it, yeah it's and he a weird he, it's a weird way to treat it yeah, he came in and he got that quick foul. And I think, I don't know if that's the reason he was pulled or if there was something else as well. And then there was, and then he came back in in the second half and got two more quick fouls, but he stayed in a little longer that time. But no, you're right. Um, Coach Snyder is not Jerry Sloan, but the thing I just kept reminding myself was, hey, this feels a little bit like when, and, it, and it's not to the same extent, but this feels a little bit like when uh, Darren Williams was starting behind both Keith McLeod and Milt Palacio in his rookie season. And I thought, you know, obviously Darren came through it. Hopefully Dante comes through it. But you're right. He he probably doesn't have the confidence that a rookie Darren Williams had. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think part of I was around that team a lot. And I think part of Darren Williams, part of the reason Jerry Sloan did that to Darren Williams was because of an abundance of confidence. And that's why this response to Exum situation um while I understand it in spirit, I, I just I hope it turns out to be the right call. Um, now, in the meantime, by the way, Shelvin Mack has played decently. Um, you know, we've all been on Shelvin Mack quite a bit. 
when he doesn't do things um, in the most efficient manner. Um, but he's had a couple of really nice games, including including that Tuesday night game against Houston. He he helped the Jazz in his minutes. So you know, I, I think that makes it less controversial. Um, but people still want to see their former number five pick playing, and uh, and especially after he just teased the world with five games worth of you know here's what an attacking Dante Exum could look like. Um, you know, people I think are antsy to see more of that. Yeah, and I think uh, I think you're right. In fact, last night I really paid attention to both Mac and Exum, and I was like, uh, against Houston, I was like, okay, well, this one I can't really argue. This game, Mac was the better player, but I don't think that was the case in necessarily the two or three prior games. Uh, the one thing that Mac was able to do last night was uh, eliminate the turnovers. Um, he didn't have one. He he seems to have a turnover or more almost every game. It's just a head scratcher. I'm like, why did he just why did he throw the ball there? Why did he dribble out of bounds? Why did he do whatever he did? And and Drive that got into under a control. Crowd and pocket yeah. pass to the opponent. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it's uh, good to see. But yeah, I mean, long term, I think we know. We 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 certainly hope that Dante Exum is the long term solution there. In fact, the idea was he's the long term solution even beyond George Hill. So, uh, but you know, we'll see. Nobody thought George Hill was going to play quite as well as he had either. So. Yeah. And by the way, I do I do find it pretty hilarious that people, um, including some very smart people who are good human beings, who I like, who I'm friends with, who I hang out with, you know, um, this sounds like it's going to be a political thing. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) I could I could do some of those, too. Yeah, I know. Podcast. Um, No, some people that I respect um, professionally and like personally. have have viewed this decision solely in terms of you know on court net rating um and i think it's hilarious that while several people that that we both know and like are going on record defending quinn on the grounds of plus minus during the same week that they're doing that quinn came out and in a completely other context, basically said, yeah, that's why I ignore plus minus. That's why I don't pay any attention to plus minus. So let's use that opportunity to just make this clear. Quinn Snyder did not do this because Exum's on-court offensive rating is 2.1 points, you know, whatever. Like, this is not a plus minus decision. This is, there are some specific things that Quinn wants to see out of Dante Exum. He didn't see them in that Denver game. He, he probably has been pestering him about some of them for a long time. This is about, you know, hey, Exum, I really can't play you if you're not going to do the very specific things we've been talking about. This is not about net rating. And net rating is one way of evaluating a player's sort of macro impact on the team. But guess what? There are others. And if you look at value over replacement player, or you look at box plus minus, or you look at a bunch of other measures, Exum comes out undoubtedly better than Max. So this isn't about Exum's rating versus Max rating. This is about Quinn needing Dante to improve in some specific areas and, uh, and, not, and and being unable to perhaps get his attention in other ways. At least that's what I'm seeing. 
Yeah, and you're, you're probably right because uh, actually some of those stats I think have evened out a little bit just after the last two games. But you're right. When I looked at them three or four days ago when this first started to be an issue, I thought, wow, Dante's far and ahead, you know, in these in some of these categories, some of these advanced stats better. And they've evened out a little bit now. But, yeah, hopefully he uh, takes it the right way, um, has a little bit of that Darren Williams attitude or a Rudy Gobert attitude and not a uh, I'm going to go hang my head and uh, not improve and not take that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. In the meantime, it'll be, um, it'll be something that, <laughs> that fans um, wince every time Shelvin Mack does something wrong, even though he just finished doing something right you yeah. know, five seconds earlier. Well, and the, the other thing I was going to add too, is that, um, you know, remember Dante Exum hasn't only lost minutes to Shelvin Mack; he's also lost some of those wing minutes with Hayward's return. So, and and you know Hayward and Hill are the ones who've taken the minutes, but also he's lost that personal battle there. That is also going to give him an opportunity now with Hood being out, because I think some of those minutes, the Hood minutes, will go to Exum, and it'll probably give Ingles a few more minutes. So yeah. he's he's going to have an opportunity to come back out, although it may not be at the point position where I think we all want to kind of see him. Uh, get some time and, and cause, cause I think we all slot him there long-term. Um, but, uh, that's, that's where he's at now. He's going to, he's going to have an opportunity to get, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes at the, at the two now. And maybe he can use that to get back in the groove. Assuming hood misses games. I mean, well, we yeah, we don't know for sure that he'll miss games, but, um, it seems likely given his history of hamstring problems. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting point. And, and actually, um, I found this yesterday before before the Tuesday game, so I don't have this updated. Um, but but speaking of Exum's many minutes at the two, um, I I found out. So everyone again was citing the fact that the offense runs much smoother with Mac in versus Exum in, and they were using on court offensive rating to to sell that point, which is fine. Um, Max on court O rating was 102 and Exum's was well below that down in the 90s. Well, if you look at Exum's O rating specifically in the 261 minutes that he had played without Mac on the court with him, his O rating was 102.1. So, I do think that there's a case that could be made that some of his low O rating is precisely because of the minutes that Exum and Mac have shared the court as sort of combo guards because we all know i mean we've we've been talking for the entire 19 games so far about how that particular tandem has not really worked that well and it just so happens that that has dragged exum's o rating down um more than it has dragged max because presumably max other minutes max non exum minutes are better than exum's non mac minutes but i just thought i would point that out that um that and and that's by the way why using the plus minus and net rating data 19 games in is a little tricky because there are a lot of different variables and and things haven't kind of evened out yet that's yeah. why espn doesn't even post their real plus minus stat until several games into the season because it's, it's really volatile early and, uh, and will continue to be so. Yeah, absolutely. You got to have a big enough sample size for it to make a difference. Yep. 
and, and a big enough sample size across all those variables too. Sure. Right. So um, the jazz still don't have, the jazz still don't have a single five man unit that has played more than like 60 minutes. So, um, so in other words, there's a whole lot of equalizing for variables that needs to happen in everybody's lineup data. And that'll continue to happen. Um, well, okay. We had, um, in addition to all that fun jazz talk, we had a power outage right in the middle. So I have no idea where we're at on time now. So, um, so let me just open end this. Uh, anything else you wanted to touch on or um, any key topics before we let people back to their busy days? Well, who's so beyond the people we've talked about? Who's impressing you? I'll, I'll throw out Boris Diaw's name. Five six games ago, I was really questioning his his uh, ability and or fit on the team. Although I was thinking it was more ability. Talk about him more length in some other podcast. But anybody else who's who's uh, pleasantly surprising you at the moment? Um, uh, you know, I would probably I, I mentioned Lyles briefly earlier. Um, there was. So two, so in the Monday night game, I actually kind of blasted him in the second quarter and, and said that he was not playing very well at all. And he wasn't. And ever since then, he's, he's kind of turned it around. He's still, he's still a little bit of a paper tiger in terms of he can fill up the box score and, and still not be really contributing that much on the, on the scoreboard. Um, so, so he's funny in that way, and and that's just I think representative of younger players, like we've talked about with Exum. Um, so he's impressive. And then the other one I'd say, um, you know, Joe Johnson finally had a good night on Tuesday night, and that is music to everybody's eyes and ears because just like how um, when Boris was struggling, I just sort of assumed that Boris would figure it out because he's a vet and he's a smart guy and he's been around the league and he knows how to, um, you know, he knows how to play his way through those things. I've, I've sort of just been telling everybody not to worry too much about Joe. And, um, and so I'm glad he finally had a game that made me look smart for saying that <laughs> since, since I looked so unsmart on the Hayward front, the Exum front, you know, everything else we talked about last week on our podcast. And yeah, and you say that, I was going to say, at the end of a podcast where we've just admitted that we were wrong about a couple of things last week, and I think back <laughs> to the discussion we had uh, in over pancakes the day before the election, where we, we, I thought we sounded pretty smart, and we were dead wrong about what we thought might happen the next day. So apparently we're not always the best prognosticators, but uh, you know, you got one there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. And, if he, and if again, keeps it up. You, you just keep trying to, you're just, you're trying to bait me into things. I think no. um, like politics or talking about the great pancakes at Tom's diner in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, hopefully there will be more surprises coming and hopefully they'll all be the pleasant kind. Um, a lot of good stuff to look forward to at Salt City Hoops, including more podcasts. Thanks to Ken Clayton for joining me. This is Dan Clayton saying, Good night, good afternoon, good whatever it is, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.